Eight to ten-year-olds, you are dismissed to your class. We hope you have a wonderful morning. Although your parents who know what verse is coming next wish you would stay. You can turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians, where we'll be picking up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. We'll be finishing our series through the book of Ephesians this morning. It's been a joy for me to get to have this summer preaching through Ephesians with you. Just thank you for all of your prayer, all of your encouragement. Uh, this is, has been a great joy. We've learned a lot together from Paul and the Ephesians and ultimately from the Lord I'm really grateful, and uh, I also look forward to the return of our pastor here in a couple of weeks. We have uh, just a couple of more weeks that they will be away on sabbatical. Meanwhile, we get to hear from another number of dear brothers in the Lord over the next couple of weeks, and then Andrew will be joining us again soon. Of course, you know that. You have the schedule, uh, but I look forward to his return. Continue to pray for them, for their, that uh, the Gutierrez on their sabbatical would enjoy this time of rest, this time in God's Word, that it would be a time of rejuvenation, and as we often say, that uh, they would rest so they can come back and be ready to run. You're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 with me, and I'm thankful for that because it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. (laughs) Beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Fred Rogers, the nicest man who ever lived, an American and a patriot, dedicated his life to helping kids feel accepted and loved and to reach their full potential. He did that for many adults, too. Uh, His show was all about being nice to others, feeling good about yourself, living a a happy, moral, ethical life, Uh, kindness and generosity, many of the things that we've been studying and learning in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. Many Christian morals as, as a professing believer and ordained minister, of course, that's no surprise coming from Fred Rogers. Um, I always found, since I came to know the Lord, as, as, much as, uh, as much time as I spent with Fred Rogers in my childhood, probably more time than I spent with my parents, uh, I found since I came to know the Lord how remarkable it is that there are so many uh, ethical and moral principles with, without any moral foundation upon which to build them. The, the show really contains no truth of the, the gospel or uh, things of the Lord. In, in a lot of ways, it, it, it is just a, an empty eggshell of morals with nothing inside. And I think it's important to think about that, not because we like to throw people under the bus like Fred Rogers. Who would want to throw the nicest man that ever lived under a bus? But because we can't live that way. Mr. Rogers' morals aren't Christian morals in the sense that our morals have to come from Christian doctrines, biblical truths. Gospel doctrines create gospel culture. And apart from gospel doctrine, gospel culture not only can't properly exist, but but will ultimately crumble. That's why our morality can't be a Fred Rogers morality. 
That's why in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul gave us a moral foundation. Before he gave any moral commands, he laid a foundation because the gospel isn't just the foundation for our morals, it's also the thing that makes them possible, motivates us in our hearts every day, and actually creates the kind of people who are able to live this way. And so now, as we're looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6, the, the second half of the book of Ephesians, we, we're seeing the, the characteristics of a worthy walk, the, those morals that flow out of the gospel, the, the gospel culture, a worthy walk that flows from the gospel doctrine. Over the last few weeks, we looked at the first seven characteristics of a worthy walk, and we're picking up where we left off last Sunday, right in the middle of the seventh characteristic of a worthy walk. It's a submissive walk. So as we pick up in 6.1, it's important to see we're just continuing Paul's train of thought on relationships. Uh, you'll, you know, of course, that the, the chapters and the verse references weren't added to the Bible until like the 1500s. That's not like an inspired part of the text. It just makes it a lot easier for us to find John 3.16 and you know exactly where to go instead of me saying, you know, that one part that says that God so loved the world and you're like, yeah, it's here somewhere. I think it was on like page 10,000 and it's just easier for us to say John 3.16 or Ephesians 6.1 and we all are literally on the same page. Um, but those aren't part of the inspired text and so sometimes they can be, they're overall very helpful. Sometimes they're just poorly placed and it makes us feel like there's this harsh division between chapter 5 and chapter 6, when in reality, Paul didn't put a big 6 in there to split what he was saying from what he's about to say. This is just part of the same train of thought. So as we pick up in 6.1, we're just continuing Paul's train of thought on relationships, right? You'll remember from chapter 5.21, one, one of the evidences of a Christian who is controlled by the Spirit or um, filled with the Spirit of God, is that we submit to one another. This is, and then he begins to talk about how that looks in each relationship. So verse 21, submitting to one another as we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then we looked last week at verse 22, wives to your own husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. And now chapter 6, verse 1 and, and on, much of this is going to continue to modify what Paul meant when he said submitting to one another in verse, chapter 5, verse 21. He'll, he'll say, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Masters, do the same. All of that is how our relationships look as we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and thus submitting to one another, it changes our relationships as Christians. It, it changes the way that we interact with each other. So Paul's not starting a new train of thought until chapter 6, verse 10, when he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. All, everything up to there is just a modification of chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another. This morning, then, we'll finish the seventh characteristic. It's a submissive walk. Last week, we saw wives respectfully follow their husband's leadership. Husbands die to serve, their, serve and sanctify their wives. And this morning, as we pick up right there in the next verse, we'll see how submissive relationships look for children and parents and employees and bosses. So, first, children. Ephesians 6, 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. 
So one of the results of a gospel culture in which we are controlled by the Spirit and thus submitting to one another is that children obey their parents. In the Lord modifies the verb. You obey your parents as you would obey the Lord. That's a recurring thought in these relational, uh, the the household code as it's called, the, the relational passages here in Ephesians 5 and 6. Kids, if you say that you follow the Lord, you should know He wants you to follow your parents. Unless they ask you to sin against God, you should do what they say. You should obey your parents. If you live in your parents' household, especially, they have authority over you, which has been delegated to them by God, and you should, as verse 1 here says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's pretty simple. For this is right. This is just the right thing to do. It just makes sense. This is how it ought to be. That sounds funny to say, but you know what? Life is complicated. Kids, you might not know this yet, but life is complicated. And especially as you get older, it's going to get more complicated. Uh, Especially as you get into the teenage years, life starts to change and it gets really complicated. It's really nice as a teenager, God has given you something that is not complicated. Obey your parents. That's not complicated. It's just real simple. It's, it's right. This is right. If you're ever uncertain about the right thing to do, ask your parents and then do what they say. We had a zip line on our property for our kids. Many of you kids have been to our house. You've, you've ridden the zip line and some of you college students too. Um, this last week, we had a delivery driver out on the property, and we're lamenting the loss of our zip line. Uh, see, as, as he pulled in to deliver things, he asked for instructions, and my wife told him, okay, so there's a path that goes around the outside of the property. If you just stay on that, you're good. Don't go through the middle. There's a whole bunch of obstacles in there. Just stay on the path around the outside. So this guy delivers the stuff he's delivering, and then he decides, you know I, know, I know she said stay on the path around the outside, but look how much shorter it would be to just cut through the middle. It's obviously wide open here. And so he drove his very large truck very fast through the middle of our property, at which point he contacted the zip line. Surprise, Mr. Delivery Driver, you've been clotheslined by a steel cable. Um, now, I'm happy to report he's actually totally okay. It was his truck. The top of his truck hit the zip line and not only destroyed the zip line, but actually snapped the telephone pole it was connected to in half. Um, so it was, it was quite the moment on the drum property. <laughs> Oftentimes, to the person who's receiving instructions from someone who knows better than them, it feels like another way would be better. Kids, oftentimes, when your parents tell you to do something, it will feel to you like you actually have a better way to do it. I know they said this, but I probably should do it this way because it just seems better. It just seems right to do it this way. 
Obeying isn't meant to make your life harder. It's meant to make your life safer. It's meant to protect you. I'm looking around at some of the kids here, and a lot of you have really amazing parents. And I know sometimes you think that your parents are crazy. And I want you to know they are. (laughs) All of us are. We're all a huge mess. But God in His grace has given you crazy kids some crazy parents to lead you in this thing called life. And it is such a rich blessing. And you'll appreciate this if if you ever grow up and you don't have a boss and you don't have parents anymore and you own your company and you have nobody to tell you what to do, you'll appreciate what a blessing it is, kids, to have someone tell you, this is what you should do. You'll appreciate what a gift of God it is to have an authority over you for your benefit and for your safety. Kids, God gives children a gift called parents to lead you and to discipline you and to give you instructions for your good. Think about it this way. If you're learning to play a new video game, your parents have just made the decision you are now allowed to play Fortnite. And you're trying to figure out, so who is Jimmy? What is an IO guard? And you're trying to learn your way in this world of Fortnite or whatever game it is. Who kids do you want to teach you to play this game? Do you want someone who's been playing the game for another day than you or someone who's been playing the game for another year than you have? You want someone with a lot of experience to show you how to play this game, right? Well, remember, your parents have been playing this game called life, some of them for 30, 40 years. That is a lot of experience. So listen to them. They aren't perfect, but God has told them to teach you how to live your life, and they take that very seriously, and you should too. And in the next verses, Paul actually quotes the Bible, kids, so that you can see he's not making this up. This isn't like, what what right does Paul have to tell me how I need to listen to my parents? No, he actually quotes the Bible. He quotes Exodus 20, verse 12 from the Ten Commandments so that you can see, like, this isn't something Paul made up. This is God's idea. This is how God designed the fabric of your life to be woven together, that you would have parents, that as you follow your parents, honoring them, obeying them, submitting to them, that your life would go well for you. So he he quotes Exodus 20, verse 12, and you can see it here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. It says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See, in the Ten Commandments, there's not just the command, honor your father and mother, move on, next command. No, in the Ten Commandments, it says honor your father and mother, and there's a promise attached to it. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So there's a promise attached. If you obey, it will go well for you. Think about the fact that you've been given a promise from God. If you obey your parents, your life will go well for you. Kids, think about a train car for a second. How can this train car know that it is getting to where it needs to go? How can it stay on the tracks? Well, it's not complicated. That train car just needs to stay connected to the train car in front of it, right? 
Kids, in the same way, you can follow your mom and dad and know that that's going to get you where you're supposed to go because as you look at the train cars in front of you, you stay connected to them and you know that mom is following dad's leadership and mom and dad are following Jesus' leadership. And, so, and you know God is in the front of this thing, getting you where you need to go in your life. So you, you just follow your mom and dad and you're going to get to where the Lord wants you to be. It's going to go well for you. Okay, end mini-sermon to children. Uh, I think it's important for us to also notice that a child's obedience is as much on the parents as it is on the kids. The command here, children obey your parents, is directly connected to the command for fathers that's coming next. And, And in many cases, children do not obey, in many cases where children do not obey their parents, it's because the kids are angry and frustrated because the parents are not consistent. And oftentimes it's because dad's leadership is not consistent. And that's exactly the connection here in verse 4. You can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, verse 4 starts with the word and. That would kind of make for an awkward English translation, but here there's, there's a string tied between the children's obedience and the father's leadership in the home. Children obey your parents and, verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For fathers, and you'll notice children are submitting to both of their parents. There's there's equal parent authority over the children, and yet... The command for how to parent here is given to fathers. There's a negative command first, and then it's corresponding opposite. First, the negative command, look at it, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What are the results of a gospel culture in which fathers are controlled by the Spirit and thus Christians are submitting to one another is that those fathers take the lead in their homes. They do not provoke their children to anger. This could be translated, don't make your kids angry. You kind of get this picture like the dad is like poking the kids with a stick, you know? And like over time, like stop, stop it, stop it, stop it, knock it off, right? And the dad keeps poking. That's exactly the picture of what's happening when dad is not leading his home. It is becoming increasingly frustrating for children who created in the image of God inherently know that their dad is meant to be an authority figure leading their home, and yet he is not. And they're becoming increasingly frustrated and angry by the vacuum of dad's leadership. Now, this certainly doesn't mean, when when the Bible commands fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, this certainly doesn't mean you should never do anything to upset your kids. Because as we all know, we were kids once, kids get upset, and it's not necessarily your fault. Sometimes it's just because they're little sinners like mom and dad. As a leader, dad, you'll, you'll most assuredly have to make some decisions that your kids will not like, and sometimes they'll respond in anger, and that's on them before the Lord. This is talking about more of a prolonged sense of provoking your children in a way that they become angry over time. We have a, a window into 
when we think about what it means, don't provoke your children to anger, we have a window into what that means, what you should not do. Don't provoke your children into anger by looking at the next half of the verse, which states its opposite. You compare the opposites and you see, well, then how is it that fathers provoke their children to anger? Well, it's by not doing the positive command that comes after this. What will prevent the provoking of children to anger? Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You are going to bring your kids up in some kind of discipline and some kind of instruction. And if it's not the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the way God taught us to parent, then it is the discipline and instruction of you. It's parenting your way, your invention, your ways. And I just propose to you that God probably knows how to parent better than all of us put together. And so we should follow the Lord's instructions for us in the pages of Scripture about how to parent. And this isn't a sermon on all of the details about what that looks like. Uh, but if you bring your kids up in your discipline and instruction, you will inevitably provoke them to anger. You will frustrate them with your nagging and scolding and, most importantly, your constant inconsistencies because God's Word is consistent. When we bring our kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we're consistent. When we veer away from this, we become wildly inconsistent, and that is frustrating to kids. If you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, you will plant their lives in a gospel-centered, biblical soil that brings consistency and, and bears fruit and makes you a, a humble cultivator of children, not a mini-lord over your kids. The text says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two things there. Let me say a brief word about each of those. And dads, again, this is our responsibility, not mom's. And I get how scary that can be. I'll never forget the day that we brought our first child home from the hospital. And we finally got out of the NICU. We finally made it home with this baby. We didn't get in a car accident on the way home. We're finally here. And we take her out of the car seat, which was the first great nightmare of parenting, and we finally get her into the bedroom. And we just take her into the master bedroom and put her down on the bed and Claire and I are looking at each other like, we need some adults around here. <laughs> like, who thought it would be okay to let us take this child home? What are we going to do? And I especially felt, oh my goodness, I'm responsible. Now, not just for this woman, but for this one too. And so I understand how terrifying it can be when we realize we're the one that God has appointed to lead our families. And we don't like to talk about that as dads because we're so macho and awesome and we totally got it all together. But I think it's good for us to be honest about the fact that we're really not that macho and we don't have it all together. And sometimes we're really scared by what God calls us to do because we're afraid we're going to mess it up. And we love our families so much. We don't want to mess it up. So let's Stick to the Word of God, dads. This is our responsibility, not mom's. She's your helpmate, but this task is assigned to us. There are two primary tasks assigned to dads here. 
discipline and instruction. Discipline is not just spanking, although you do need to spank your kids according to Scripture, but discipline can also be forms of correction, punishment, consequences for disobedience. Instruction means you are teaching your kids how to live life according to what the Lord says in the Bible, the instruction of the Lord. This includes things like leading our families to church on Sunday, leading family devotionals, reading the Bible to your family, talking with your kids about their lives before God individually, praying with them, teaching them what Scripture says about their questions. This is... (laughs) This is what a a spirit-filled dad looks like. He brings his kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He he leads his family in allowing that to happen so that uh, wise children are cultivated in the home. When you think about discipline and instruction, it's really helpful. It's helped me over the years to think of, if you think about like a timeline, let's just say you start with a child when they're zero, and you end when they're 18. Obviously, there's factors to consider there. But if we just say there's a timeline from zero to 18 of kids, right? You think about discipline and instruction. When a child is six months old, there's just not a lot of discipline happening, right? But very quickly in the process, they start trying to put keys into electrical outlets and things. And instruction doesn't work. Now, let me talk to you about the laws of electricity, right? No, no, no. They need a slap on the hand or something that's going to get through to their heart, right? They need, to, they need to learn when mom and dad say, no, we mean it. You have to win the no battle early on with your kids. But there's, you're not sitting down with your two-year-old and you're like, you know, I want to help you today grasp the theological foundation of your obedience to us as parents as rooted in the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah. (laughs) You got that? And they're like, nah, nah. And on the other end of the spectrum, when they're 18, you probably shouldn't be spanking your kids anymore. And so (laughs) you think about Discipline, lots at the beginning, and as they get older, it tapers off less and less. And instruction, very little instruction at the beginning, but as they get older, you're transitioning them to only instruction. And for a while, discipline and instruction are hand in hand. They coincide with one another so that the instruction finds its way to your kids' hearts. And I would just say, as you think about those things, because we're, we're 30,000 foot overview of the book of Ephesians here, right? We don't have time to dial in all of the details about these things, but if you've got thoughts, questions, concerns about parenting, and you want to understand better what the Bible teaches about how to parent, I would encourage you to pick up uh, a tr- one of the trip books on parenting, T-R-I-P-P. Now, I can never remember which brother is which one, which one's got the tarantula mustache, and which one doesn't, but they both wrote really good books on parenting, One of them is called Shepherding a Child's Heart, and there's a phenomenal chapter. There is a whole chapter in that book about how to spank your kids. You would think it's not that complicated, but if you're going to couple discipline with instruction, 
it takes some intentionality, right? You don't just spank your kids every time you get angry. That's it. I'm smacking you on the butt because you made me mad. That's not discipline. That's just selfishness. And so I'd encourage you to pick up one of those books. If you're thinking through those things, uh, read it together with your wife. Dads, it's really good to think through. There's so much in Scripture about how to do this well. And it's important to realize, again, this is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't discipline our kids in order to get them to behave and obey so that our lives are more convenient. Listen, if you had kids and you thought it was going to be convenient, (laughs) parenting is the least convenient thing on the planet, but it is rich and rewarding and wonderful. Just don't try to make it something it's not. It's not convenient. It's not efficient. It's hard, but it's wonderful when we do it the Lord's way. So dads, take the lead here in the discipline and instruction of your kids. You can do this. I know many of you, like me, feel like, man, by the time I get this dad thing figured out, my kids are going to be having kids. You know, I'm not going to figure this dad thing out until I'm done with it. I get it. I get it. But God has given us such a treasure in his word to help us think through how to do this well. And dad, God doesn't use perfect dads to raise good kids because there aren't any perfect dads to choose from. God uses imperfect dads because he is the perfect father. And your biggest responsibility is just to introduce your kids to him so that they would know and see the perfect dad and know that you're not him. As we continue to see in these verses that the the Christian life is a submissive walk, Paul moves on to the third of three pairs in the household code. First, he talked to wives and husbands. We did that last week. Then he talked to children and parents. We've just finished that. And now he talks to slaves and masters. And before we jump into this, I just think it's important to say, (laughs) I told my wife this week, she's like, yeah, this this week's sermon is going to be really interesting. We're talking about spanking and slavery and, you know, so just pray for me. I think it's important to say that slavery in Paul's day was different than slavery in America in a few really significant ways. Um, first, skin color was not a factor. There were people of all var- varying uh, ethnicities who were slaves. Uh, so slavery and racism were separate in Paul's days. I'm not saying racism wasn't a problem. I'm just saying it wasn't directly tied to slavery in the same way that it was in historical America and the problems that we faced here. Um, second, Free people could sell themselves into slavery for a time, like if they had a purpose to do that, and slaves were able to purchase their freedom. And so there's some, some big differences, and none of that is to say that slavery is okay and it, or it was okay in Paul's day. Even in Paul's day, there were abuses of authority, but it was a, a gover- government-ordained legal institution. Now, I know that doesn't make it right either, but Paul doesn't make the argument to end slavery here. And I think that could be upsetting for some of us. Like, why doesn't Paul just say, hey, stop doing that? He doesn't. And I think part of the reason is, and there's probably a number of reasons, but his primary goal isn't to solve every problem in the world with his letter. His primary goal is to spread the solution to every problem in the world, namely the gospel. 
And if Paul has to address every single, um, every single human injustice, then he's not ultimately going to be able to deal well and faithfully with the gospel, which is the solution to every single human injustice. If the, if the gospel spark ignites in a culture, it becomes a wildfire that burns down every type of human injustice because it doesn't just change people's behaviors. It changes their hearts. And when their hearts are changed, their behaviors change. Meanwhile, masters and slaves are very much a common part of the home in Paul's day, in the culture in Ephesus that he's writing to. And so, in the same way that he, he's thinking about how does being controlled by the Spirit manifest itself in the relationships within the home. And those primary relationships are wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And so, he's addressing that from a perspective of how the gospel changes those relationships. I think we have to be really careful with present-day application here. Uh, Paul was writing during a time when government-ordained slavery was legal and a standard institution, a form of employment and a regular part of the home. That doesn't make it okay, but I do also think that there, there is a connection here. There are theological principles that we can draw from what Paul says to slaves and masters, and those theological principles can be applied to employees and bosses. And sometimes we make that jump so quickly, we don't think about all of the things I've just said that relate to how we do that, but just to say, we have to be careful how we do that. We need to go from what the author, what the author intended for his original audience to the, the timeless theological principles, and then from those timeless theological principles, we draw application for our own lives. So... Paul says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And really, there is, there's no way around the translation here. Um, I understand why they translated it bondservants, but the Greek word doulos is slave. It's slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now, if you were translating the Bible from Greek into English, and the primary place English is spoken in America, this translation is meant for Americans speaking English, and we recognize there is a huge cultural history as soon as you mention the word slaves, and that cultural history is not the same as what the Ephesians would have thought when they heard the word doulos. I understand why they translated it bondservants instead of slaves. They don't want to bring our American cultural baggage into the text. Uh, but just to recognize, this says literally, slaves obey your earthly masters. And you see that, that word earthly masters, earthly masters, and, and you know what's coming in a few verses, don't you? There's a heavenly master. In several ways, that command is modified to explain what this obedience to our earthly masters should look like. With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And notice that there's that theme again repeated in this section, right? Anyone under authority should submit to and obey that authority, even if it's a wrongly placed authority. It is not wrongly placed by God. He is sovereign over all things. And if there is an authority over you, whether it is an evil master or an evil government or an evil HOA, 
we should submit to the authority that God has sovereignly placed o- under over us as we would submit to Christ. So I can receive a letter from my HOA like it came from Jesus. He continues to describe what it looks like to obey earthly masters in verse 6 when he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. I was in a McDonald's walk-in freezer playing snowball baseball. Snowball baseball. You see, me and my friend Joe, it was our first job. We were 16 years old. And as the, uh, the most important position in McDonald's, the burger flippers, we had two primary responsibilities. One, flip burgers. Two, when the burger flipping is finished, clean out the freezer. And cleaning out the freezer once a week meant going in with these big metal paddles. It was basically like a big metal handle with a big metal flat almost like a massive spackling knife. And the goal was to go in and scrape all of the condensated frost off the walls of the walk-in freezer. This is just part of, you know, health inspections and uh, keeping it clean in there. And as you'd scrape all of this ice off of the wall, it ultimately created snow. And so as two 16-year-old boys alone in the McDonald's freezer, we did what any of you would have done. We made snowballs. And of course, then you're holding this huge paddle. And so the only logical thing to do is to play snowball baseball, uh, which we were doing when our boss walked in. Uh, and of course, you know, you've, we've all had this moment, haven't we, where you are doing something you are not supposed to be doing, and the person who's responsible for your obedience walks in, right? And you kind of have one of these moments where you're like, batter up, here we go, and oh, I'm just scraping the wall, just scraping the, oh, there's no frost here, I was over here actually, right? We've all had that moment, and I think that's a really good picture of kind of what happens in our hearts, Right? We're only doing the job because the boss is watching. When that's true, whether you are 16 or 60, when we're only doing it because the boss is watching, we're forgetting who the real boss really is and that he's always watching. We forget why we're doing this thing called work. In one sense, it is is just to serve and honor him to put his character on display in our work ethic. He's the whole reason we're doing it to begin with, and that's why Paul continues in verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. I mean, if you want to revolutionize the way you think about your job, remind yourself on your way to work every morning, that God himself put you there for a reason. And it's his will for you to do your job with excellence. And he is right there with you, not just watching, but rooting you on in faithfulness as you work ultimately for him and not for this earthly master. And there's a reward for faithfulness too. Paul says in verse 8, knowing so, so you do this, you, you work diligently because you know something. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So it doesn't matter what your status is. 
if you're doing what you're doing for the Lord, He will reward you. He will reward your faithfulness. So one of the reasons you can obey your boss is because of what you know. You know you're ultimately doing the will of God and He is going to reward you for it. So Paul addresses the slaves there. Now he addresses masters in verse 9. Interestingly, he says, masters, do the same. Masters, do the same. The same. I mean, how do masters obey their earthly masters? Like, what does that mean? Well, the same, again, refers back to verse 21, submitting to one another. It's this whole cultural shift of the way that we interact with one another. Remember the context. Christians who allow their lives to be controlled by the Spirit of God submit to one another. Wives to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, fathers not provoking their children to anger, employees obeying their bosses, we could say, and now verse 9, and, and bosses or masters do the same. Have the same kind of heart attitude in the way you submit to one another. You're not just doing this for yourself, you're doing it for the Lord. And he says, notice verse 9, masters do the same and stop your threatening. Stop you're threatening. Bosses can use all kinds of tactics to motivate their employees. Here we see threatening them is really just a form of selfish manipulation to keep yourself at the top of the food chain. But you're not at the top of the food chain, even if you're the boss. God is. There is a heavenly master. And that's what Paul says here. Masters do the same, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. No partiality means he doesn't receive a face, literally in the Greek. God doesn't receive a face. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your status is. I heard the, the story of someone who was a teacher in a Los Angeles school and is a private school where a number of famous people took their kids, and there was this rule about parking. And, you know, most people obeyed the rule about parking, but not the famous people. Famous people would park where they weren't supposed to park and do whatever they want to and break all of the rules because nobody would tell them otherwise. Until this, this person that I know ultimately was like, no, no, you can't park there. And their coworkers were like, that's Brad Pitt. You can't tell him that. Yes, I can, because the rules apply across the board, and it doesn't matter how recognizable his face is, the rules still apply. He can't park there. In the same way, God doesn't receive a face. Bosses, God doesn't care who you are or how much authority you have but he does care how you treat other people who are made in his image. Again, I'm going to throw a book at you because it's a really easy way to help you think this through in a time when we can't cover all of the details here. If you've got some questions about work, about being an employee, about how that fits in with your Christian life, even if you are a boss and you're trying to think through what that looks like as a Christian, I'd recommend a book called The Gospel at Work. Uh, it's a phenomenal book that specifically deals with uh, 
not just moral and ethical principles from Scripture, but how the gospel informs and motivates the way that we go to work as employees and as bosses, so the gospel at work. So as Christians are controlled by the Spirit of God, we see that they walk in a way that is submissive to one another. Relationships are changed. Husbands and wives, children and fathers, bosses, employees, their relationships are changed by the gospel. And so the seventh characteristic of a walk that is lived in a manner consistent with gospel doctrines of chapters 1 through 3 is that it's a submissive walk. We are submitting to one another. Eighth characteristic And final characteristic of a worthy walk, it's a wartime battle. That looks different. It's a walk, 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 it's a battle. That's exactly what Paul does. From the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been repeating this word as he refers to the Christian life, a walk, a walk, a walk, a walk, a walk, over and over and over again. And now he wraps up his letter here, and in the final image that he leaves in their mind as he ends the book, it's a battle. He says, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now we know just because Paul says finally doesn't mean he's almost done. Um, In this case, though, he is almost done. Uh, He says, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is a defensive battle, not an offensive one, just the way that this is phrased, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's a defensive posture here, not an offensive posture. We're not going out looking for demons to cast out. That's not what we mean when we talk about spiritual warfare. We're talking about defending ourselves from the the temptation and the fiery darts of the evil one. When Satan comes to tempt you, to test you, to try you, to attack you, we're talking about being ready for the battle. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your guns will do you no good in this battle but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, fighting against those things, that sounds terrifying. Your bullets cannot hit these targets. This requires a different kind of ammunition. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Again, this is defensive, not offensive. In the next verses, Paul's going to describe the armor of God in great detail, and as much as we'd love to get into all the wonderful details about this, our 30,000-foot view through Ephesians doesn't allow us to, it does allow us to see the main idea here. We are in a battle, a war, It is wartime today in Prescott, Arizona. Today, this week, this year, you are in the fight of your life. So let me ask you, do you carry? I mean, we live in Arizona. This is the Wild West. Do you carry? Many of us carry guns for our safety, weapons for the safety of our families. I don't carry when I'm preaching because I don't want to be a distraction when I go like this and you see a gun, right? But also because I figure all the soccer moms will take out the bad guys if there's ever a problem and the security team will totally back them up. 
Now, you might be someone who carries a gun on you at all times in case of danger. You're ready to defend your family. You're ready to defend yourself. That's a good thing. But are you carrying the spiritual weapons that you need to fight the even more dangerous battle that Paul is talking about here? The spiritual battle for your life and the the spiritual health of your marriage and your family. Now, as I read these next verses, I just want you to notice the the spiritual nature of these weapons. And I want to ask you, do you carry? Do you carry these weapons or are you defenseless? Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, if you carry, you know you got to have the right belt on or it kind of flops over because your gun's heavy. You have to have like a core tactical belt. Here, if you're going to fight the battle for your spiritual life, you need to have fastened on the belt of truth. You need to know the truth. This is the primary weapon that we fight the battle with. And he continues in verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And you'll, so you'll just notice all of those are spiritual weapons. Do you carry them? Have you memorized verses from God's Word that you can pull out at any moment to fight the battle when you are under attack? Or are you defenseless? Have you believed the gospel of peace so that you are saved and protected and sealed by the Spirit of God? Do you know the truth? Are you carrying the Word of God in your heart? The things he mentions here, truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, the Word of God, salvation, prayer, the enemy is out there, and he's in here. He's in your backyard in the dark, and he's in your living room in broad daylight. So do you carry, or are you defenseless against the enemy? Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand as he wrapped up his letter to them that they were living in wartime in Ephesus, and we do well to remember that too. There is a battle being fought for your soul, for your marriage, for your family every day, and if you think there's no battle, then Satan has already won against you. If you are not in the battle fighting, then he has already beat you. And it is a battle of deception. And you need spiritual weapons of truth to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's what Paul wants the Ephesians to be busy doing. So Satan will stop at nothing to stop you from spreading the truth about everything. So as Paul is doing that, the Ephesians are doing that, he wraps up his letter requesting prayer for that very thing, for the advance of the gospel, and a few administrative notes about the spread of the gospel at the end. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, Paul's parting words, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And so as we've walked through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've learned a lot. We saw in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the vast beauty of the gospel and the doctrines that Paul laid out there. And we saw the transition to chapter 4 where Paul made it clear those gospel doctrines create a gospel culture in our church as we're motivated by all that God has done and we walk in step with the gospel. And thus we saw We've learned from Paul's eight characteristics of gospel culture here in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So as we think, all about, think about how all of these things fit together, we think again about Fred Rogers. As a professing Christian and an ordained minister, he dedicated his life, again, to helping others, to living a moral life. In a recent documentary about his life, his widow tells the story of his deathbed on which he asked her a telling question. He said, Joanne, am I a sheep? She said, if anyone is a sheep, Fred, you are. Now, his deathbed question was really more of a confession, wasn't it? He was confessing that, facing the weight of eternity. He just wasn't sure that his life of good works was enough. Because, of course, it's not. It's not our obedience to the commands of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 that make us right with God. It's not our keeping of the moral principles of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 that cause us to be able to stand before our Heavenly Father in the day of our death. No, it's the gospel doctrines of Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 that give us confidence to stand before God holy and blameless with great joy, even though we've spent our whole lives trying Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and miserably failing but getting back up on our feet with Christ's help and trying again. Because we want to put His character on display in the way we live. We want to show the world the gospel is true in the way that we love one another. So as we meditate on the rich gospel doctrines the Lord has revealed to us, that gospel doctrine is creating a gospel culture among us at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. And so, Lord, we just finish our time in the book of Ephesians in the same way that Paul did repeatedly through the book of Ephesians, praying. God, we need your help. We're not asking that we would just be better people. We're not asking that we'd be better at keeping the rules. We're not asking for small and simple things like that, merely externals. God, we're asking for a total transformation of our hearts and minds. We're asking that by the rich truths of the gospel, you would mold and shape us into the image of your Son in our inner man, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, God, that we would see your beauty and your glory in the face of Christ Jesus as we look to the pages of Scripture, that you would reveal wonderful things to us, 
things that transform us on the inside so that our lives and our church are transformed on the outside. God, do a mighty work in our church. Continue to make us more and more like your son. Teach us, humble us, and grow us. Draw us near to you, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.